This episode is brought to you by Great Waters Financial. Curiosity is the chief tool of the creator. If you're stuck on something, ask a different question. That's McNair Wilson, creative thinker, imagineer, and author, joining us on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello and welcome to a Bold Idea Podcast. This is Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. We're coming at you to encourage you to put your faith to work because there's so much more inside of you that's just dying to come out. <laughs> just right. dying, right? That's right. And we have the guy today that is going to, I think, encourage all of us really in our own endeavors and being bold idea people. He is a creative thinker. I mean, a really creative thinker. He's worked with Apple, Salvation Army, Chick-fil-A, Applied Physics Laboratory. He was an Imagineer for Disney, worked as a concept designer for five theme parks, and he led the team that conceived the very popular Tower of Terror, right? He's written five books on creativity. He's got more to come. His most recent, Hatch, The Brainstorming Secrets of a Theme Park Designer. He's a speaking coach. Clients including former Disney Michael Eisner, Jerry Jenkins, and yours truly. <laughs> and he's been great. We uh, He's a member of seven, uh, has been a member of seven professional theater companies, McNair Wilson. Welcome, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you. I'm all choked up about it. Sorry. Randy went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> you know, I never know what to expect with you, man. <laughs> Actually, I'm just drinking some fancy schmancy coffee. So <laughs> I, I wish I wish it was something stronger to, re, to you know well, it's, fortify it's a, myself against what's to come. <laughs> it's a little harder to drink when you're standing on your head, but uh, you know, hey, <laughs> you know. As long as you put down the plastic pad, you protect the carpet. (laughs) (laughs) I always love being with you, McNair, and I'm glad you're on the program. Um, Thank you for asking me. Yeah. So, so let's, let's dive right into this because you, you go around, you, you consult with a lot of organizations. You've been around the world. You worked at Disney as an Imagineer. Um, I don't know of anybody that knows you who doesn't think that you are a highly creative guy and and just looking at your office space i can tell you are as well too but tell me mcnair what let's let's talk about this because i know you challenge thinking about this what is creativity let's just start there oh perfect because the new book i'm working on is completely about that uh just as a background when i was at imagineering they noticed that my teams would get to bigger ideas faster than a lot of other teams, brainstorming teams, uh, blank piece of paper teams. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I had a system. And I said, well, it's a combination of infant sacrifice, silent prayer, and standing knee deep in tapioca. (laughs) And their big question was, how many peas in tapioca? In other words, is it a transferable concept that could be taught? And I said, of course. So I began teaching my, what I now call the seven agreements of brainstorming, which is the content of my last book, Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of a Think Park Designer, teaching it to Imagineers because I noticed my first day at Imagineering as a consultant, they weren't brainstorming. They were doing what all people do when they think they're brainstorming, and that's playful arguing with snacks on the table. And I say, you know, keep the snacks, get rid of the arguing. But when I started to teach the same class, 
Disney University at the studio to Disney execs, they would say, well, I think I understand your process, but I'm not creative. That word creative shifts the tectonic plates of, of, of people's inner nervous system because creativity to, to the vast majority of human beings over four years old, and that's an important point, um, means art supplies, play practice, choir and band rehearsal. And that's such a small area. It, you know, it's the, the example I give in the new book it, uh, is I was sitting in a favorite restaurant and a group of people walked in. It was a Sunday night and I was working on my latest project. And I recognized them to be from a local church because one of the members of the group was the music minister who was a longtime friend. And he came over and said hi and shook hands. Moments later, the waitress came over and said, can I get you all started with a drink order? And one of the ladies in the group looked up indignantly and says, we don't drink. And the waitress, to her credit, said, a glass of water, ma'am, a soft drink. He says, oh, well, oh, okay. You know, we jump to these conclusions in life mm. because we, we put our own definition on words. And so creativity to most people means artistic expression beyond the realms of anybody's possibility of trying. And I say creativity is merely the natural human abilities of imagination and curiosity put to use. Mm. Love that. So, and hopefully it's put to use for for. Good things, not necessarily practical, useful things, though those are good. I mean, look what Steve Jobs said, told his daughter, I'm going to put a thousand songs in your pocket when she was walking around with a disc man strapped to her hip. And and, and it, sometimes creativity is merely not so much creating the new, it's rearranging the old to appear or function in a new way. You know, I'm old enough, Larry, you're of that generation, that, that modern church worship, contemporary church worship, would not be recognizable even 20 years ago, mm -hmm. let alone in, in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, I can remember the first time there was a guitar played out loud in a church service in my life. Well, it was Sunday night. Nobody remembers Sunday night services. And it was Sunday night after we'd all just gotten back from winter camp, and we sang camp songs. And it wasn't that cute that we had a guitar, you know, in church. Now you you can't go to the, the most... In a, you know, straightforward, formal, big denominational church morning worship without there being a small rhythm section there somewhere, you know, tooting along, trying to drown out the organ and other instruments that God invented, like the piano. And, so, and, and fog. Uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> and fog. Everything. You know, lights <laughs> and fog and, and, a, and, a, and a pastor who doesn't know how to put on a belt or tuck his shirt in. You know, I just don't want to slap these guys and say, hey, you're an adult act like one but that's just my background in coaching speakers that people people don't understand that sometimes when you get up to speak you're what you're wearing and the way you're wearing it right away sends a signal to people that's going to take them several minutes to get over assuming you're going to be any good when you open your mouth so anyway so creativity is merely taking those things that occurred naturally effortlessly as kids you know in all my workshops general sessions long day my that's why i call my Full day or half day workshop, the curiosity tour. Well, no one will 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 say I don't have a curiosity. Of course they do, but what I so I call it that because if you call it the creativity day, people will self select and not come. And those are the people that need to be there most. And and I have no problem with the, the highly what I call actively creative or the consciously creative. I have no problem with them showing up. But in my workshops, we give everybody a stack of six, eight, ten pieces of blank paper. I mean, unlined 
photocopy paper, very simple, and a fistful of three or four cheap felt pens, the kind that you can get 20 different colors in a package at Dollar Tree. I say, put the laptops, the iPhones, the iPads, all the electronics away. For the time that I'm with you, this is how you will take notes. And people right away look at me, oh, we, oh, okay. And by the first break, they're coming up to me, tears, literally tears in their eyes, growing human beings say, I've never done this before. I said, no, you haven't done it since the day before you started school. Mm-hmm. Because when you start school, and I have this story in the new book, the teacher says, all right, let's put away our, our, um, our alphabet books, and now it's time for art class. And Max turns to his friend Dayla and says, Dayla, what is art class? And she says, well, Max, I think it's like coloring, except she tells you what to color. And Max, incredulous, says, well, how does she know what I want to color? Because <laughs> the, anthropo- the anthropological evidence is every, every civilization they've gone to, even in the fourth world, that would be pre-technology cultures or what, you know, what we would call you know, primitive or the, you know, the National Geographic folks. Um, they found that children by age two and three are fully creatively expressed. They're doing those things that in grown-ups we would call creativity. They're singing, dancing, playing, drawing, painting w- w- without instruction, without anything. And no child, I challenge any of your listeners to say, I've got a child who when he was three, I gave him crayons and he looked up, mom says, says I, can't, I can't use these, I'm not a trained artist. No child says that. Mm. All adults will think that mm. about, about themselves. And it's just sad that, that, you know, I say creativity is, one, it's factory installed. And two, it is the spiritual distinction between us and all other life forms. Oh. Animals don't create. I'm sorry. Elephants don't paint. It's a trick. Hmm. When did you first realize creativity and a lifestyle of creativity was something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Well. You know, I don't know if I could pinpoint it because it's like, you know, a, a lot of folks who are Christians can tell you the, the day for me at camp, 10 years old, Green Oaks Boys Ranch, Vista, California, when I got up before the invitation and started to walk forward that I need, I knew I needed to accept Christ. Other friends of mine, they can't pinpoint a date. They sort of grew into it. I think that's possible. Absolutely. So I really can't say there was a point. I, I know that before I knew I was a child of God, I knew I was an artist. I hated junior church because it was junior church was created for little kids because big church would be boring. Well, junior church was just as long and worse than big church. <laughs> and I complained to my parents that so they let me go to big church. We brought art supplies or I doodled on the back of the offering envelopes. And so I was drawing before I could read. And when I could, when I began reading, probably about four years old, as my parents tell it, you know, I remember thinking, well, you could you could make up your own stories. I mean, where do these stories come from? And they'd show me the name on the book cover. And they said, you could make these up yourself. And so, you know, before I knew it was a profession, I wanted to be in the theater. My mother took me to a play and I said, who are those people up there? She said, those are actors and, and, and they do that for a living. And I said, sign me up. Hmm. And so I had, I had to wait until I was, I mean, my first performance was as the blind shepherd boy the critical role in the in the all church christmas pageant <laughs> jesus and the indians go to bethlehem but um but didn't turn professional until <laughs> i was 13 and i was i was at the pasadena playhouse in the production of richard the third and i think through a clerical error i was not cast as king richard but i was nonetheless in this <laughs> shakespearean play and 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 so i've just always done it 
and I've always known I was going to do it. And uh, you know, the whole idea of coaching and teaching and and inciting people. I mean, my job title in my little tiny company is CEO, but it means chief encouragement officer. Mm. And the number of people that seeing that on on LinkedIn or one of the other social media sites where it appears, they say, "What a great title! How'd you get that?" I said, "I gave it to myself." <laughs> You can do that? Yeah, you can. I used to call myself emperor, and it really unnerved people. They didn't like putting it in the programs at conferences. So. <laughs> emperor, is that like president? I said, no, presidents come and go. The emperor stays. <laughs> what was the first time you actually got paid to do something creative where you realized I can make a life out of this? Well, those are two questions. Uh, when I started at, at Disney Imagineering in the mid-'80s, um, my mother's best friend for years and years and years was a, a family in our church in Southern California. And she dug out and gave me a, a poster on railroad board. Now, you'll know railroad board. If you go to Dollar Tree, they sell this kind of thick poster board, but it's, it's flimsy. In other words, you can roll it up, not thick like foam core. One side is shiny and one side is dull. That's railroad board. And she brought me a railroad board poster that I had done for a fundraiser that our college group at, at our church was doing to raise money for, um, I don't know whether they called them impoverished kids or underprivileged kids, but anyway, for kids who couldn't otherwise support it, to go to Disneyland. And I did the poster announcing that campaign in Feldpen. I was paid $5 to do this, and I spent $8 on Feldpens and, 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 the, and the, the, the railroad board. <laughs> but everybody said, well, you didn't make any money. I said, no, but I still have the Feldpens. So the next time, all I have to do is spend a quarter on a new piece of railroad. She had saved that, and I put it up in my office. And they said, oh, is that something now? And I said, look at the date. Because for some reason as a kid, and this is a pet peeve of mine, I put the year on it. And one of my pet peeves about posters for events is they'll put the month and the day. They won't put the year. And you'll go back and say, when did we do that play? When, we, when did we do And so I always tell people, put the year on it. Um, so that's the first time I was paid to do something artistic or creative. And uh, I think it was in high, in fifth or sixth grade when I was the um, layout editor for the school paper that I thought, ooh, they used to call it graphic design. I'd like to be a graphic designer for a, for a living. And I, and I remember the best looking magazine at the time, I thought, was Esquire. So my life goal was to be the, the uh, art director of Esquire magazine. That's still a great looking magazine. It's full of crap, but it's, it's a, can I say that on your podcast? Um, I don't know. I asked the same question often because I hey, hate crap all the I, think, time. I think I heard Phil Cook say crap on your podcast two or three times. So. Anyway. Um, well, there is so, a lot of that out there, so we were just acknowledging that reality. It, it, it sure is. You, you guys know the website churchmarketingsucks.com? No. Oh, you need to find, I mean, just the name alone tells you what's going on. Anyway, uh, so that's that's the early roots of it. And, and so I would say, you know, pre-teens, I was pretty well um, in my mind and heart set on that I was going to be in the arts. I didn't know whether it was going to be theater, graphic design, writing, and have continued in all of those disciplines. I, I mostly do graphic design now as a, you know, for my own projects. All my books are illustrated by me. I try to have a hand in the cover design. And just recently, this last couple of weeks, I've helped a friend who's got his first book coming out and he sent me the book cover, and I said, why did you send me this? He said, well, I want your comments. I said, no, you don't. It's going to be a two-week conversation. And just yesterday, we finally got it nailed, and I think it's going to be a fun fun thing. That is one of the fun things about reading your book, Hatch, was uh, just seeing all of the the creative splashes that you put in there to illustrate it. And uh, it, was, it just made it a lot of fun to read. 
you know, it was interesting. I wanted the book to have the feel of sitting over my shoulder and looking through one of my 140 sketchbooks. So 95% of the art in the book is mine. Mm-hmm. Of that, 90% of that is unretouched, unchanged doodles and drawings of mine taken out of sketchbooks. That I didn't do anything to other than put them in the book. Mm. Um, and it's funny that even though that was all locked down, the book was done. I had the galleys. That is the, the actual layout of the book. Ready to go. And a friend of mine, Max Paul Franklin, who's a brilliant, brilliant, award-winning, traveled the world filmmaker, said, where the heck are you going to teach the rest of us how to doodle and draw? And I said, you can draw. He said, no, I can't. I said, Max. Anyway, I spent the week writing the chapter that in Hatch is the doodle factor. And I knew that there was a lot of new research about the power of visual thinking. That is adding visual cues to your note-taking, not just words, but putting a box around a set of words or making a few words bigger than the other, or if you can draw a star, a moon, a pointed hand, an arrow, for gosh sakes, you can add up to 40% to your retention by doing notes that way rather than just words. Taking a text, whether it's a, you know, a textbook or a Bible or whatever, and, and putting next to it you know, a demonic pad of yellow-lined paper and writing with a ballpoint pen, demonic part two, um, <laughs> You, you, all you've done is add maybe three or four percent to your to your retention of what you've just read. Highlighting adds another one or two percent because you still got to go back and reread it. Mm-hmm. Just highlight the darn book. You've paid for the book, write in it. <laughs> um, but if you start adding visual cues, and so I said, well, let's try this. So I started writing this thing, had him read it, and then I created this, which which is in Hatch, this fourteen page McNair's Fearless Field Guide to doodling and visual thinking. And it's been one of the surprise hits of the book that people are sending me their examples of it. Look what we've done. And I did this with my team at work. I did this with my with my, uh, um, my writing group, whatever, people drawing. And I said, you know, they say, I can't, I can't draw stick figures. Yes, you can, because you went to camp and you sat in the back bench and played hangman. But <laughs> even though you can draw uh, stick figures, nobody's hiring stick figure drawers. And people say, well, I can't draw a straight line. I said, go to the biggest art supply store in your town. They will have an entire aisle, an entire aisle of T-squares and rulers and triangles. And those tools are bought by really talented artists because they can't draw a straight line. <laughs> and drawing a straight line is a test for nothing. So just, just you know, you can't because you don't try. Michael Jordan didn't do what he did at the level he did it because he woke up one morning and could do all that. No. He stood in the driveway well past dark 30, well past his mother's third announcement out the window. Your dinner's cold. Your dinner's cold. Your dinner's in the fridge. And he became that way. So the key to being a great basketball player is playing basketball alone in the driveway after dark and eating cold food later. Mm. Apparently. But, the, you know, we, we do well what we do a lot. You know, the old 10,000 hours. Who knows if that's true? It's a great thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. But I was just talking to a friend yesterday who I was, I'm going to start coaching and mentoring, which I do one-on-one with people, either personally or mostly through a project. And and he's, and he's and I said, you know, that's a hoax, this 10,000. He goes, yeah. He says, I've probably played 20,000 rounds of uh, 20,000 hours of golf. And I said, how's the PGA Tour going this year? Well, he's not a professional <laughs> golfer. He works in IT at, at a wonderful nonprofit here right. in town. Yeah. So, yeah, there's been a lot of controversy about about the 10,000 hour rule, and it probably depends on what you're practicing as well and how how you're actually engaging in the practice. 
but let's let's talk about the people that you have um, you have coached McNair along the way. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the people who are kind of entrenched, the executives who come up to you and say, "But I'm not at all creative, right?" Yeah. What are yeah. some of the things that you found that are some of the common obstacles that people who don't think they're creative need to overcome? Uh, in my all day workshop, we begin with my recapturing your creative spirit, which was the talk that I created and eventually made a part of the reg- my regular curriculum at Disney University to answer the question of executives. I'm not creative. And I identified four key characteristics. I call them habits. A habit is merely a behavior that you've done so much it comes natural to you. There are good habits or bad habits. There's Twyla Thorpe's, Twyla Thorpe, the uh, wonderful choreographer, her magnificent book um, uh, is it called Create Habits of Creativity. She has 29. But anyway, I've, I identified four that I noticed in everybody I knew that was create that was identifiably creative on any level, and I noticed that all four of these habits. We're not we're things that everybody does, and none of them by themselves, if I mentioned them, like take a risk. Well, take a risk is not necessarily creative. But what what is a risk? It's to begin a project or journey without knowing what the possible outcome could be. And so in co- in coaching folks, I would just say, try this, try this. What about this? What about this? You know, the four-minute mile is the best example of a guy challenging assumptions, another uh, habit of the creative. Everybody said it couldn't be done. There was a couple of guys they thought could do it. And this young doctor, after his morning rounds at the University Hospital in England, went out and on a day that had been rainy all morning, so not ideal conditions, went out and Roger Bannister shattered the, you can't do a four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there had been a conference in Helsinki, Finland, where scientists and medical officials decided it was humanly impossible to run a mile in less than four minutes. And he did it. And then others. And many now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it's it's about changing how people see it. So after I do the the, the recapture creative spirit, then we do a thing called shattering the the roadblocks to creativity. And I'll stand there. I always use a big easel. I I don't like PowerPoint because that assumes that that what you need to say to this group is the same as what you needed to say the to the last group. And I'm sorry, I can draw cartoons and nobody else can. So I just I'm a firm believer in using the best of me all the time. You know what do you do best? Do that. Mm-hmm. And now do it some more, and it'll get better. And so I'll go up to the easel and I'll say, "What you know? What stops us from being more creative?" I could typeset and put on a poster board the list of key things that people will mention every time. And it's things like, "There's not enough time. There's not enough money. Uh, what will people think? What will people say?" You know, those are all the fear—fear fear of what people think, fear of what people say, fear of failure. Well, failure is only really failure if. If we don't learn from the outcome, failure is you not hitting the mark that you had set for yourself, which is often too high given your abilities, resources, and and the time you had to do it. So look at it. And as I used to say to my street theater group at at Epcot, you know, we're hired for three months to do 10 shows a day. By 85, we were doing 45 shows a day. We stayed seven years at Disney Epcot and did 40, uh, no, we did, yeah, about 41,000 street theater shows. Wow. And when I when I went out to watch shows, because I had project directors in each of the areas, United Kingdom, Italy, and so on, I wouldn't give specific show notes. I would say, Larry, that's the best, that's one of the best shows I've ever seen you do. I love where you did this. I love where you did that. So I'd give them two positive specific notes. And then I'd say, now, you've got another show in 35 minutes. How's it going to be better? Mm. So we learn from our, and I even hate to use the word failure, but we learn from what we what we call failure. And so a lot of the coaching is helping 
people identify what they're already doing that is creative, that is magnificent, that is terrific. You know, it's the I was working with a group of a chain of 51 bakeries in New England, and they had some wonderful expressions of creativity in company that they didn't realize they were being creative. And one guy says, Well, there's a guy in our in my shop, and he this a little tough to deal with. And so on. So is there anything like about it? He says, What do you mean? And I just off the top of my said, Why don't you assume brilliance? So what do you mean? I said, assume there's something good about him and find it. And when you find it, point it out to him. Point it out loud and vigorously as if you were mad at him. Say, that was fantastic what you just did there. Whether it's some little reinforcing comment he made to a fellow employee or whatever it would be. I was doing this for a faculty of, uh, of a full college in, in, in Oregon. And, and I said, how many people we have? He said, well, if everybody comes, including part-time, it's about 92. So he said, we should have about 80 there. Well, we had over 100 show up. The staff said, can I come? Can I come? And then they said, there'll be a lunch break. And, and then we'll do a couple more hours. And at the lunch break, about half, half of them left. One person left because of a previous engagement. And she didn't know that there was going to be more time after lunch. When I got to the assume brilliance point, one of the women said, well, not every child is mentally gifted. So I said, uh, are you in the English department? And they laughed. She was head of the English department. <laughs> I, said, I said, okay, step away from the, the Webster's Seventh Collegiate Dictionary. Don't get so trapped in the actual definition of the word brilliant. Find, what I'm saying is find the best in the most challenging people. Is there a glint of light anywhere mm. that you can celebrate and enjoy and help them see that? And that's a basis. That's a beginning for them to grow to whatever's next. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. I mean, by now our listeners know this episode is brought to them by our friends over at Great Waters Financial. That's right. Just so you guys know, when we say our friends, they really are our friends. One of the partners was even a groomsman in my wedding. So when we say we know them, we really do. These are men and women of character, men and women of integrity, men and women of faith. And I'm honored and proud, as is Larry, to have them as our sponsors. That's right. They have over $200 million in assets under management, and they serve clients all over. But one of the questions that keeps coming up is, how do I know if I have the right financial advisor? How do I choose a financial advisor? So they have prepared a very simple and free download for you to get and answer those questions, how to choose a financial advisor. It's just a terrific resource that they want to make available to you. Even if this helps you pick someone other than them, they're happy with that because they just want to add value to you. So just go to greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea. Again, greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea to get your free downloadable resource. Investment advisory services offered through Advisor Net Wealth Management. Great Waters Financial and Advisor Net Wealth Management are not affiliated. Insurance products provided by Great Waters Financial, a Minnesota insurance agency. Now, uh, you have just unloaded a bunch of stuff here, and I'm, my, my CPU is trying to catch up. You mentioned four key things, but I'm not sure I caught what the four are. So run through that real quick again. Okay, I didn't say all four. I'm sorry. So um, in no particular order, but the order I usually teach them in, take risks. Mm -hmm. That is to do, do something not knowing what the potential outcome could be. Just go for it. Challenge assumptions. And assumptions are really the rules that we actually live by in spite of what's the employee manual or so on and so on and so on. Uh, the, the example 
example I use there is when I go to a meeting at Imagineering, there's always be somebody there in a white shirt and a tie. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what the heck's going on? Imagineering is a very casual place. I mean, flip-flops, jeans. Our boss, Marty Scolar, who, rest in peace, just about died a couple weeks ago. Um, and he would show up every day in just slacks and a, and a polo shirt with a rodent embroidered on the chest. Fortunately, it was the rodent known as Mickey Mouse. But he was a very, very casual guy. <clears throat> so I thought, who are these? I realized all these white shirts and ties were people from the engineering department. <clears throat> and I, so I went one day to the vice president of engineering, Orlando Ferrante, nicknamed O. And I went to his office and said, oh, I got a question. And I said, ah, oh, thanks. And I walked out. He said, wait a minute, what, what, McNair, what's going on? I said, I had a question, but I got the answer. And I'll say to my workshop people, I said, what happened? And the smart ones will say, was he wearing a white shirt and a tie? I said, of course he was. He's vice president of engineering, vice president of white shirts and ties. So I, I asked him, what's the deal? And he just laughed and laughed. He said, when you go to engineering school, it's about precision. We're talking thousands of degrees of an inch to get things correct. Or buildings fall down, bridges collapse. He said, so if you can't, until you can actually be precise, you try to look precise. And I said, but oh, what Imagineering? Come on. So he and I created a full-day workshop called Creativity for engineers. Now, I warn people, don't try to say creativity and engineers in the same sentence because your <laughs> lips will fall off. But I'm a tra- trained professional. And we began that day with my cutting off his tie and his cutting off the, one of the top guys in his d- d- division. And then we passed a pair of pinking shears, uh, 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 tailor shears around and every person in turn took turns cutting off the tie of the person next to him. It was, it was kind of like a, a secular creative communion. I mean, it was very, very, very almost a sacred uh, exercise. I, I hope they and brought he, their cheap ties. <laughs> well, you know, and I didn't ask Orlando before then to do that. And he brought the nicest tie he had that his wife had spent like $150 oh, on. And no. this, is, this, this is the mid eighties. Yeah. Does it make lattes? Is it self-cleaning? What is it? He took that tie and hung it up in his office and every new engineer that came, he'd get up and cut their tie off. And he says, well, them to Imagineering. Yeah. And it, it just, I mean, people were in tears I wonder because if, they felt shackled. I wonder if he so, brought his, he, his wife to his office to see the tie. Oh, <laughs> she, she, she was a pretty affable gal. So I think she would. <laughs> so take twist, challenge assumptions. Um, stay curious. Curiosity is the chief tool of the creative. If you're stuck on something, ask a different question. You're not asking the right questions. And I've had clients who were stuck on something for months. They dial me in. I mean, I've done this with conference calls on the phone. And in two or three questions, they'll go, ah, ah, why don't we think of that? I said, because you're inside. You're looking at the trees. I'm looking at the forest. And and, and I may not answer the question, but I certainly will get them to ask a different or better question about it. And I've done that so many times with with clients who are working on stuff I don't begin to understand. I have clients who make things that are currently orbiting the planet. I wouldn't know. I, I could probably draw you a picture of that, but I certainly, certainly couldn't make it. Uh, and, and besides, educators and ministers, and you name the you name the profession. Take risks, challenge assumptions, stay curious, and then finally see differently. If, if if you're looking at something that doesn't make sense, look at the other side. Pick it up and look underneath it. Look at the top of it. Pull it apart. Look at it differently. And that's the thing of assumed brilliance. If somebody's bugging you, all you're doing is focusing on their bad side. Mm-hmm. My favorite human age group is junior hires because there's no pretending with them. And the example I give is the kid at my church. We're standing on the curb in Pasadena waiting 
for the church vans to come around from the parking lot so we can load up and go to Magic Mountain. And one of my favorite kids, Jeremy, comes up to me, and probably Jeremy number 12, because in those days, everyone is Jeremy, Josh, and Justin. And Jeremy number 12 said, <clears throat> Nero, have you got any breath mints? I said, well, sure, Jeremy. He said, well, put one in your mouth. <laughs> in his mind, he was doing me a huge favor. He wasn't being mean or cruel. That's 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 how he thinks. Mm -hmm. And and so I had to working with junior hires. I had to see and think the way they did, and they didn't bug me anymore. I mean, they never really bugged me because I'm not sure that in terms of my own maturity, I've moved much past 13 myself. <laughs> <clears throat> and here's an interesting thing: even though I've got those four characteristics. In writing the new book that's based on those that talk, Recaptured Creative Spirit. As I was writing it, this other thing kept coming up, and I didn't know where to put it in the book because there's a certain structure to the book that everything has to fit into. And it's kind of a secret structure that I hope people will discover as they read it. They go, hey, did you know that all your chapters X? I said, yes, I did. I did that on purpose. And I thought, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And the other night as I'm writing, I've, I realized where to put it. It's a fifth habit. It's subtle, but it's true. And that is the most creative people I've ever been around have the gift of encouragement. Mm. That they're always wanting younger, newer, or even older folks who are interested in trying something new. They're interested in helping you do that. Mm. Love that. Man, you just gave us a quick course in creativity, and this is all packed into your new book. Is that right? Yeah, it's um, if people go to, to to my blog site T, like the drink T E A T with McNair, they'll see a link to my to my one TED talk that's recorded. I've done three TED talks, but that's the only one that was recorded, and and it's recapturing creative spirit. And the only caveat I would put is it was at an educators conference, and so the it, it was some kids from the the school where we we're at. It was the the video department for some reason they thought shooting everything really tight was good even though i told them at the beginning look i'm very animated keep it wide and they didn't <laughs> but it's there it works great there's been a lot of people see it so that's the basis of the of the new book which is book two in my creativity uh my my creativity trilogy which right now is a four book trilogy yeah so as, I, as so, i've got it mapped out so hatch is book one is that right yes and okay. this will be book two all right when, when should we expect this one to come out well my my personal goal that I set for myself, and I've got several friends who bug me about it every week, is that the manuscript will be done the end of this month. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm that's doable. Uh, I'm hoping to do that. If I can do that, then three things will click in that will make the book available before Christmas, because I'm going to self-publish this one like I did the last one. Um, and that is, I will hand the manuscript off to my editor and to the book designer who does the interior, and I will also launch a campaign of pre-selling the book. Uh, which will help, you know, raise the funds to actually produce the book. So yeah, great. So our listeners can Christmas. our listeners can learn more about that at teawithmcnair.com. dot com. Sure. Is that right? Yes. All right, we'll yeah. put that link yeah. in our show or, notes. We'll yeah, put that Twitter link in is our just McNair Wilson. So yeah, we'll have, we'll have all your social media stuff in our show notes, so our listeners can get to your page. What's next for your bold idea? I mean, apart from the book, you're going to put the book to bed this month. But what's next for McNair? Well, a couple of couple of things. I've got a children's book series. <clears throat> I wrote the first of the series 10 years ago, and I didn't do anything with it. And it's probably, other than the illustrations, it's it's probably 80% um, written. So I told my, my literary agent, I said, I want to take a break in this creativity series. Because the book I'm writing now is the hardest book I've ever written. It's the one book I'm going to write before I die. Um, 
And so I've probably worked too hard on it and overwritten, but my my editor will help me with that. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me about this children's book. He says, could it be a series? I said, why? He says, tough to get a, unless you're famous, it's tough to get a children's book written, published, unless it's a series. And I said, well, what constitutes a series? He says, three. I said, how about five? He said, we can get that published. And I told him the title, the subject matter, and what the next books in the series would be. And so hopefully, you know, we'll we'll get that out there. And that'll be a nice break. The other project that we'll probably work on simultaneously after the first years, <clears throat> had a lot of requests for the audio version of Hatch, you know, me reading it from mm-hmm. not only friends who are, you know, challenged with their sight or just outright blind, but other people who said, I'd just like to have that in the car reminding me. What we're going to do is an audio visual version. We're going to do a, um, a subscription one chat, one episode a month for a year plus. That'll be me into a video camera from various locations, including Disney theme parks or Starbucks or wherever, doing Hatch. And it'll allow me to read it and also to annotate, tell stories that didn't make the cut in Hatch, and maybe even leave some stories out. And I can say, you need to look at page 48 and read this story. I'm going to tell you this other story instead. And so that's something I'm very excited about. My filmmaker friends are excited about helping me with. Yeah, that's great. Well, so excited about your new book coming out and the fact that you spent some time with us on the show today to talk about your creativity habits. Um, it's good stuff. Thank you. Well, yeah. you know, according to my notes, we're still on question number one that you sent me, but I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. We, no, and no, we're, we're, we'll no, stay we on that. We covered we can, a lot of ground. We could stay on that question for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I just want I just want people to you know, one of the things when people go to my website, people they'll see a list of books that I recommend. There are books on if you want to draw more, books on if you want to speak more and better. Because I coach speakers, you know, having been in front of an audience forty thousand times between speaking and 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 theater, you know, I've I've learned a couple of things. So when I go to big conferences, one of the breakouts I'll often do is um, a speaking tips from a forty year veteran. And there's some things that, that, that are unorthodox but helpful. Um, I've had a couple of well-known speakers, and I, I'll quote him because he said I could. Michael Hyatt, who was uh, you know, publisher at a you know, big publishing company for years and years, and he took one of my tips, and he says, why did nobody ever tell me that? He said, it's transformed how I speak. And I said, because you've been taught by speech coaches and, and English professors, I'm a theater professor, professional mm-hmm. And so this is what I've learned. Yeah, and uh, you know, McNair, and, yeah, McNair. I remember the time when uh, I, you were coaching me on some of my my speaking, and you, one of the exercises you told me was to sing. So you remember this? You said sing uh-huh. so loud that the 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 people in front of you turn around at church, turn around and take a look at you. That's what you were trying to get me to project, <laughs> right? Right. Remember I that? Think, well, singing. <laughs> Doing any kind of singing is a great warm-up and exercise for all speakers. I, but one of the one of the weird things that happens, it's not weird to me, that happens at almost every professional thing I'll do. I'll be standing backstage. There's huge, there's a big set, and there's there's a guy standing there pinning my b- b- body mic on, and there's all these technical people. And I'm over against the wall, stretching my legs, you know, doing all these physical warm-ups. I'm humming, I'm whoa, 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 doing tongue twisters, and they'll come over and say, Are you okay? What are you doing? I said, I'm warming up. I'm yeah. about to go on stage. And they said, well, you're just going to speak. I said, no, I never just speak. Yeah. And then I'll come off and two or three people backstage says, man, I can see why you warmed up. It's, <laughs> it's like you were doing a performance. And I said, wouldn't it be nice if all the other speakers realized that's what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember. I remember when you told me, gave me that advice to sing as if you know to make the front of the pew, uh, the the people in front turn around and take a look. And I, I yeah. think I told you it was going to be difficult because I sat right behind the deaf section. <laughs> oh, you got a challenge here. Yes. Oh, sing, sing yeah. like it doesn't matter and nobody's listening, and yeah. dance the same way as yeah. if nobody's watching. Wait, I'm still curious. What did you say to Michael Hyatt? What was your advice to him? I missed that. Oh, um, you got a piece of paper. I'll give you. I'll give you a little. Um, uh, a little thing to write down. Okay. And the letters are O Y F O L. Oifel. You want to be an oifel speaker. So one day I'm at, I was, as I taught for Ken Davis in his SCORE conference, Dynamic Communicators Workshop, he had this outline of seven things you do to prepare for a talk and it's study, outline, so on, so on, so on, so on. And I got up and I pointed to it and I said, I agree with everything Ken said, but I need to add something in here. And I put a little arrow and on the bridge of the arrow, I wrote the word oifel. And I pointed to one of the pastors in the room. I said, Pastor, you got a choir or worship team? He said, we have both. And I said, do they come in Sunday morning and just kind of get up and do their thing? And he looked at me and I said, well, do they meet in? Oh yeah, they rehearse, they rehearse. Two or three hours every. I said they rehearse, and that rehearsals. What do they do? They look at sheets of music and say, "Ooh, look at the dots go way up. That's going to sound high. Be interesting Sunday morning. See how that sounds." He said, "No, they actually sing." Ah, you have a church basketball team? Yeah. How many games? Well, you know, twenty games. And I said, "So they play? They they play together twenty? Oh no, no, they'll 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 have practices a couple times a week." And I said, "When they're practicing, what are they actually doing?" measuring the ball, measuring the distance of the hoop to the ground. No, 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 they play. Ah, so why the heck when we speak, do we think we can sit at a desk, write notes and say, now at this point, I'll be loud. At this point, I might do a gesture. And we stand up and the first time we make those notes out loud, we think that the gesture fairy is gonna come and poop on us and make us interesting. You need to be an oifel speaker, which stands for on your feet out loud. You've got to practice. The entire presentation, whether it's a five-minute announcement or a 40-minute Bible study or a 20-minute sermon or anything, you've got to do it on a, If the first time somebody hears this new presentation of yours is the first time you do it on this, at the Saturday night worship or the Sunday morning 8.30 worship, you're shortchanging people. They're, if they're lucky, they're only seeing a dress rehearsal, and they're never any good. And, and, and Michael Hyatt said, I just, I, why did nobody tell me that? And I have so many pastors who say they go in Saturday afternoon, sometimes Friday afternoon, and if they preach in a robe or, the, or, or whatever, they may have jeans on. But one pastor says, I put on my nice Sunday shoes. I put on a shirt and a tie and a coat because it feels different. I said, absolutely. If you practice in your, in your Bermudas and a T-shirt and then you put on your suit, gestures work differently. Mm -hmm. So it's not only gesturing, but it's the words. You've written some wonderful stuff. But when you start to say it out loud, you've written tongue twisters that cannot be said out loud. <laughs> and so you have to rewrite. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing how many speakers, and Michael was just one of them, he just was just shocked. He says, at 20 years of speaking, nobody ever told me that. Yeah. I said, well, you've never been in the theater. I have been. I can't imagine going on stage. Now, the, the rule of thumb in the theater is for every minute you're on stage, there's an hour of rehearsal before that. I've been in plays that were two and a half hours long, and I was in all but one scene. That meant that I rehearsed for well over 150 hours. And even then, I've never been in a play where closing night, I didn't think, oh, starting to understand this scene. There's more I could do with this. And so creativity is, there's a dissatisfaction about creativity. 
Freud said, and this is the only thing I've ever heard from Freud that I agree with, I, I don't wish him ill. I mean, you know, the guy's dead, so there's nothing I can do about it. But he said, frustration is the early warning sign of creativity. It's you going into your office and saying, what if my desk did face the window, like McNair always yeah. says, instead of facing the door as if to say, hey, come on by, interrupt me. I'm not doing anything important. Mm, that's good. Love that. Well, lots of stuff and even more. <laughs> so, McNair, thanks. I appreciate you spending the time with us today on the Bold Idea Podcast. Thank and you, guys. I wish next you... time, we'll let, the other, we'll let the other guy talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you all the all the best in this new book this coming out, the Creativity Series. I'm anxious to get a copy of it myself. So, um, thanks, guys. Looking forward to that. And thanks again for being yeah. on the show. God bless. Well, our, our mean, I know we could go on and on and on with McNair and uh, just listen to some of his stories is just a lot of fun. But yeah. let's uh, let's let's take a, a, a flyby over all the stuff that he said and let's condense that down. What what did you pick up here that you thought was? Well, uh, I'm still stuck on Oifel. <laughs> An hour for every minute. Yeah, I don't got 30 hours to prep for a message. No, no. but, I, but he, he, he did say that was a that was in theater, right? And so he's oh. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to process that one for a while because I, I don't think I've ever spent 30 hours rehearsing a message. No, I think his point really is that uh, it's the one area. Public speaking is the one area. I think you and I both know this, that it's easier. It's so easy just to sit down and, and write a message out and you think, OK, well, I'll just deliver it then. And he's saying, hey, you don't do that in basketball. You don't do that in singing. You don't do that in theater. Why would you do that in public speaking? Yeah. And so I think that's a really good point. It is a really good point. I just. I want to dismiss it because I don't want to spend that. (laughs) 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 But I know he's right, though. He is right. I've spent 30 hours prepping a message. I I remember long ago learning uh, the definition of a lecture and uh, the alternate definition of a lecture. Ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. A lecture is when the notes of the professor become the notes of the student without passing through the brain of either. That's good. I like that. <laughs> so let's let's talk more about uh, some of this stuff here. I mean, he talks about creativity, and I love his definition: the natural human abilities of imagination and curiosity put to use. Mm, that's good. You know, we get so tied down, and I think his point is we get so tied down into thinking that creativity is this artsy thing, you know. And you might not consider yourself to be artsy fartsy, you know, right. but but you could you are creative. You know, God's mm. given you a natural ability and an imagination, and yet we often don't turn that loose and say, hey, how can I apply my imagination today and put it to good use? That's right. And I, I, just just to go over those four, and then he inserted the five. Yeah. Right? It Let's was do it. Take risks, begin a process, uh, journey without knowing the outcome. Two was challenge assumptions. Three was stay curious. Four was see differently, which he added assume brilliance by making reinforcing comments. And five, he threw in at the last minute uh, the gift of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Out of those, which one stuck out to you the most? Well, um, I think I do to take risks things to do a lot of that um, and, and, and challenging the assumptions. I think the thing that, that I liked about what he said that stood out is he said, as soon as he said it was the assumed brilliance thing. I, I just think that when we see in others and see their potential, and I think that ties in as well to the gift of encouragement, but I think something comes alive when you start to see the possibility of things. Yeah. as opposed to seeing the limitation of things. And I, I think that we are, I mean, test me on this, Armin, but I think we're in such a critical culture. It's so easy to observe things and find what's wrong with it yeah. that we don't observe things to find what's right with things. Yes. 
And, and I just think that if we develop and cultivate in our spirit, the spirit of gratitude and the spirit of favor and the spirit of positively looking at things and finding the brilliance in it, assuming brilliance in, in all things. I mean, yeah. there's so much to be celebrating and yet we find it's so much easier to be the armchair quarterback and say, I would have done it differently or would have done it somehow and find right. ways to improve things as right. opposed to ways to celebrate as they are. That's that. That's funny that that's the one that stuck out to you the most because that was a lesson I learned when I was just in uh, Kenya with Art Erickson, uh-huh. um, and it, it, it's a quote that's ingrained in my head where it says, "Some people uh, look through diamonds looking for flaws, while others look through dirt looking for diamonds." Mm. And he says, "You know, like th- there's a whole point behind yeah. that, like." who who is going to be better off in life yeah right the person not constantly looking at some somebody else's diamond to see their flaws or the person leaking through dirt to find diamonds someone's yeah. value is going to be by far more yeah it's the person finding diamonds not just looking at flaws yeah i'm guessing the cynic would say though the person looking through dirt doesn't have nearly as many diamonds as the other guy <laughs> yeah unless he hasn't known them because <laughs> it's someone else's diamonds they're looking yeah, yeah. at yeah fair enough <laughs> Fair enough. Well, listen, we hope that you enjoyed our conversation with McNair. Of course, you can find all of the links to McNair's website, his Twitter page, and all the rest on our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash 38. We'd love for you to engage with a comment. Let us know what you think about the show uh, at that at that website, as well as calling our show line 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. Now, the other thing, too, that we want to let you know about, we do have a bold idea blog. And uh, so if you want to get inspiration, not just over the podcast, but also through email, go to boldideapodcast.com, sign up for our emails, and you'll get blogs sent to you that are written by our guests or written by Armin or I to encourage you in your bold idea. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. And this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. We're wishing you all the best. Go get them. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.